The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and one magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Hey, bub, you just bought yourself a whole heap of trouble, because this here's Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. And in case you ain't heard, we're the best there is at what we do. And what we do is re-examine the world in the 90s comic book industry through the pages of Wizard magazine. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I don't have a mutant healing factor to repair my shredded vocal cords, so I better cut that out. Instead, let me introduce you to the team of Merry Mutants on the panel this time around. Currently escaping from a top-secret government facility wearing nothing but my own body hair, some random wires, and a VR helmet that looks like somebody decapitated R2-D2, I'm Adam. Traveling back in time, building weapons and forging them all over the place, I'm Michael. And since we're the new geeks on the block when it comes to comic book podcasting, we're already bringing on a guest star to boost sales. So, bounding out of the wilderness with retractable claws of comics fandom raised and an unbreakable adamantium laced to back up his berserker rage of opinions, it's Jeff! Hey guys, thanks for having me. <laughs> now, this isn't a big day for the podcast, third issue, and we're happy to have everybody listening. Thanks so much for all the kind words you've shared with us. Now, Jeff and I go back a long ways on the internet originally. This is where you find people these days. It used to be the comic shop, and now you can find like-minded individuals on various forums and websites. Tell me you didn't mean a chat room on AOL. That's all I really <laughs> <laughs> Not that long ago. But yeah, but Jeff and I were hanging out over at a site called Retro Junk and eventually moved over to Retro Days, where we're regular contributors talk about 80s pop culture and found out we loved the same things when it came to action figures and comics and cartoons and TV shows, all the old stuff. And after a while, it got to the point where it's like, you know, we got to finally hang out. Like, we got to really make this official. So we've got antiquing together, if you want to say. We've sifted through some bins of comics together. And we've even uh, brought my family over for a barbecue at Jeff's house. So this is just the next stage. Michael, look forward to it. Invite us over. Hey, man, if you want to fly over to the East Coast, come on over. We'll hang out. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the first time we did meet was on the East Coast. We met in Philadelphia face-to-face, first time, and went to a comic book store together. Yeah. Really? That's pretty cool. We went to RetroCon. It was this big gathering of all our friends over on Retro Days, and then afterwards, like, while we're waiting to go to the airport and all that stuff, we literally went to Chinatown, and we walked around, and then eventually we just, like, were walking the streets of Philly, and we found a comic book store. We're like, this is awesome! <laughs> Do you remember what you walked away with that trip, Jeff? Uh, I walked away with Rocky merchandise. You walked away with with a football comic book. Yes, Super Pro. That is right. <laughs> I can't believe you remember. Really? That's awesome. Yes. Super Pro number one. You better believe it. Well, speaking of that, you guys are lucky I'm here because it's playoff football and I'm missing a big game right now for this. So I'm uh, excited. <laughs> this is much more important. Comic books are way more important in my life than sports will ever be. <laughs> the New York Jets are out, so I don't care either way, but it's just fun to watch. So. Is Flash Gordon still playing for the Jets? 
He is, actually. Yes, I heard <laughs> a gold medal retirement. But Jeff is somebody that, as I've gotten to know him over the years and seen the importance that comics played in his life, there's a perspective there that I think you're all going to understand as we go through our conversation here. But as this is our first outing with a guest on the show, we do have a new segment to kick it all off. So, Jeff, tell us your origin story. So, Jeff, this is what we'd like to know, I think, first off, is where do you think the concept of superheroes was even introduced to you? Through what media? Through what format? Oh, man, I've been interested in superheroes and comics for as long as I can remember. I was exposed at a very young age. I became enthralled with the Incredible Hulk, Amazing Spider-Man, much later, the Uncanny X-Men. But in 1979, at the age of two, I was already proudly sporting my Spider-Man pajamas. Coloring in Whitman, Incredible Hulk, and Spider-Man books. By age three, I was punching one of those bop bags. Mine had Incredible Hulk on it. I remember and, those. I had yeah, one of those. The weighted end and the color on the bottom of the... Yeah, my brother dropped it on my head. <laughs> I have a twin brother, and we grew up with superheroes. We listened to superhero records. We watched the live-action version of The Incredible Hulk that ran from 78 to 82. Do you um, remember the Spider-Man record? Yes, I have my, it. My grandmother had it for some reason, and I used to play it whenever I go over to their house all the time gr- growing up as a kid. Wait, I remember is this that the record. Where it's like the rock opera version, or was it a story record? It's a story record. It's the a one story I record. Oh, yeah. okay. Because there was another album that was actually like a musical that Stanley's narrating, and then it's all these songs about being Spider-Man or Dr. Octopus, and it's great. <laughs> They made some kooky stuff, but I even had Batman records, Superman and Friends, Saves Christmas. I had all that stuff, but more I was into Marvel. The Bill Bixby, it was actually David Bruce Banner, which is different than the comic book Robert Bruce Banner on the TV series. And then the Hulk was played by Lou Ferrigno. And we loved that. We just loved that. I remember splitting my shirts, like putting on a button-up shirt and trying to Hulk out of them. <laughs> We'd rip them, and my mom would get go crazy, and we'd run around the house. We'd try to tip over the coffee table, and we'd lift up the corner of the couch, eating Pez by age five that were Hulk and Spider-Man and Batman. Mostly, though, I would say that my love for these heroes came from watching Spider-Man in 1981, an animated series. And then 1982 came out Spider-Man and his amazing friends with Iceman and Firestar. And then in 83, the Incredible Hulk cartoon. That's where there was a real love for superheroes and anything superhero related, belt buckles, you name it, I had it. And so there's no genesis. I was born into it. <laughs> it was just always there. I was, yeah, I was born into it. We always had those heroes in our lives. Comics was a different story. One of my favorite movies is Breakable. I agree with you. And there's a line by Samuel L. Jackson's character saying that comic book characters are are our mythological beings like you would have in the Greek gods. And the way he said it, and I'm paraphrasing it horribly, that's the way I felt as a kid. I connected what you're saying a lot. I'm just wondering if back in the day they had, you know, Zeus or Mercury underoos. You know, was there an equivalent toga that you wore? (laughs) 
Maybe not, but I can tell you right now, when Marvel Universe came out, I knew all about Norse mythology, or at least I thought I did, and Greek mythology. I mean, whether it was Odin or Zeus, Hercules or Thor, comic books gave me my first introduction into that larger realm of mythology. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree, 100%. Yeah, it seemed like older writers, you know, the ones who were kicking it all off for us, were steeped that generation. That was literally what they did study. Those were their superheroes, were the Greek gods, and they just kind of adapted that to a modern, you know, in many cases like a sci-fi or fantasy reinterpretation. I liked also about Unbreakable is that he said these powers and things, they could have been something that was more realistic. I like the more realistic approach of that film where mm-hmm. they said, this. we just didn't understand it at the time. Nowadays it can be explained away with modern science or whatever else, but the powers that they had attributed to them were something that people saw and didn't understand. Right, and he mentions even as simple as instinct, and that could be considered an ability of some sort. Totally. And going back to your referencing of like Thor and Odin, for me, even Captain America as a kid gave me my first understanding of like war and all those kind of things. And that's where I started learning about history was through Captain America a little bit. Like, oh, wow, this is what happened. Wish there wasn't a real Captain America. Now, Jeff, this is interesting. So like you said, the the heroes were there for you first. and, And Michael and I had a very similar origin story as well. So where do comics then get introduced into your life? How do you discover that as a medium? In 1982, when I was five years old, my very first comic books came in Masters of the Universe toys. Ah. He-Man. So my brother and I, I got Skeletor and my brother got Stratos in an Easter basket, a Mm. toy. And the the figure came packaged with a mini comic. And that was how I was introduced to print media superheroes, I guess. And then after that, my very first regular sized comic book, I'm pretty sure came from a doctor's visit. Mm. I went to the doctor and I picked up Spider-Man and Storm and Power Man Battle Smokescreen. It was a promotional comic book given away free by the American Cancer Society. And Smokescreen was like a bad guy who was trying to get athletes to smoke cigarettes and then he would bet against them. (laughs) Right? My mom got me all the Secret Wars figures. I played with Wolverine and Doctor Doom and Spider-Man. I had couch fortresses of Doctor Doom and I had the, the, you know, the coffee table laboratory of Doctor Dr. Octopus, and I I had superhero birthday parties, Wolverine posters on my wall. I mean, I listened to Podcast Zero. I vividly remember the summer of 1989, Batman, that you guys already talked about. I walked four miles to buy the figures. I bought the cereal. I ate the cereal. I was 12 years old when that came out. But the first comic book I think that has importance to me, the one that I selected for myself, was in 1988, and I was 11. I went to the dentist. I had no cavities. My mom said I could pick out a treat. We happened to be at a 7-Eleven, and I was looking for candy or something as a treat. And on the spinning rack of comics, there displayed was an Uncanny X-Men issue. It was number 232. It had the face of the brood alien on the front of it. And I vividly remember just looking at that and thinking, that looks really cool. I'm going to get that. And so while I was delving into X-Men, my, my twin brother was busy looking at Incredible Hulk and trying to figure out why he was gray at the time. <laughs> Because we had watched the show, we'd looked at comics, we knew he was green, and that's what we picked up, and it just kind of went downhill from there. <laughs> Once we got into the stories, and this is really cool, we started buying comic books everywhere. We'd see them at a yard sale, and the, the advantage of having twins was one of us would stay there, the other one would run home and negotiate as much money as possible through future chores or whatever, and come running back, and we would buy the entire collection that they had there. We, they were selling them for 10 cents or a quarter. We'd say, here's 20 bucks, can we take them all? And we would take them all and we got a huge collection really quickly of very old comics that way and then my mom saw that we love comic books 
She took us to Night Flight Comics in the mall. I'll never forget. Big neon Batman symbol. And I walked in and it was like Mecca or something. It was heaven. And there was comic books everywhere. And I was like, oh. You know, just <laughs> unbelievable. And I switched my predilection for heroes from, you know, the, the Web Slinger and Cape Crusader that I watched with my dad, the Adam West series. And I watched, you know, the Incredible Hulk. I switched all that to this irascible mutant with his claws. And the proprietor knew an easy sale when she saw one coming in the door. She came strolling over and she said, what do you like? And I said, Wolverine. And she says, well, you know, Wolverine had just barely gotten his new series. And she's like, check these out. They have pictures on the back. Classic X-Men, if you want to catch up on his story here's the current x-men here's wolverine here's marvel comics presents wolverine and off and running i was already collecting like five titles that's amazing yeah yeah it was it was kind of a, a different experience but that's all i wanted for like birthdays and and presents and things was was i i need to have more i need to understand where these characters come from i saw them i grew up with them but now i want to know what's the real story not the tv story what's the real story yeah go back to the source and I remember in the early 90s and, and late 80s, Wolverine was, he was the, one of the most popular characters out there. He was selling like crazy. He was what Spider-Man is nowadays. There's 15 titles of Spider-Man. Wolverine had, I remember there were so many different stories going it was, on. It was horrible. I mean, Adam probably remembers trying to collect Web and Spectacular and Amazing Spider-Man and whatever guest appearances. But you walk in with, with only the amount of money that a child has and you try to buy, you have to pick and choose now because you can't collect them all. In fact, that was one of the downfalls that led me to uh, kind of moving away from comics. I want to talk about that, Jeff, now. I'm going to put you on the spot here. But, you know, when a, a child only has the ability to gain a certain amount of funds to purchase comics, as you mentioned, but I know that at a certain point, your obsession and your mania led you to some possibly criminal activity in order to <laughs> obtain some very key issues. Do, do we need a disclaimer on the, on the lead end of this show? Uh-oh. Uh, oh, man, I can't believe you're painting me as a villain already that's just <laughs> wow okay yes i have done nefarious things to feed my mania i've done it all right so we used to go to the mall but it was like way far away my mom had to drive us there it was a pain we went to like grocery stores and circle k's and 7-elevens to get comic books one day we happened to be sitting in a, a godfather's pizza and we noticed when we pulled in there was a comic book store a few doors down and it was by my house within riding bike distance and we're like oh my gosh well it was called D&D Collectibles and Comic Books and D&D had nothing to do with the Dungeons and Dragons the owner's name was Dick but walking into this store was completely different than the mall experience there was no neon lights there was no full size standees of characters it was wall to wall long boxes it was dimly lit and when you walked in the proprietor would like talk to you he'd call you by name very soon we'd be became regulars at the place very soon we had our hold boxes where he would hold our titles that we wanted and very soon we became infamously known and then banned forever from <laughs> this wonderful place yeah yeah all right thanks a lot adam for this but uh <laughs> my mom used to sell avon and we were tasked my brother and i to go out and collect the avon funds right before the big christmas haul you know where they buy all that stinky cologne in a in a ship or a car bottle or they buy crap for the relatives that they really don't care about we were tasked to get the the funds and and so that she could make the deliveries or whatever and so we were walking around collecting funds and checks from little old ladies and the majority of them gave us checks but some of them gave us cash and the cash that we received was a lot and it was possibly the most money i'd ever held in my hands at the time and a thick cloud of stupidity <laughs> 
clouded our brains and we knew that mom would know that the money was missing. You know, our evil little hearts grew darker and darker and, and our judgment right went right out the window when we thought, how could we take this money to the comic book store and get away with it? And we decided that the plan was we would blame it on dropping some of the money in the snow and then you wouldn't find it till spring. And so and somebody else would find it and it would be gone. And so we made tracks right to the D&D collectibles. We went straight to the front counter, not to the back issue bins, nothing like that. We went straight to the front counter, and we pointed to those long, sought-after, on-the-wall bag issues of the most expensive comics there, and we said, hey, Dick, how much are those? And we slapped down way more money than any 11-year-olds should ever have, and the unscrupulous proprietor didn't even blink an eye. He sold us all these magnificent books and we spent a couple hundred bucks in cash and walked out the door. And we went, we made a home. We secured the books in our collection to read at a later time. And we, we gave mom the stuff. She was busy at the time when we came in the door. And she quickly realizes, hey, these totals don't even come close to adding up. And so the next thing you know, we're out in the snow looking for this money that was long gone. <laughs> and uh, she saw where our tracks led. She knew exactly what happened. And so the next thing you know, I'm being dragged in by the scruff of my neck, pushed through the door of this comic book shop. And she's demanding her money back. And the dude's like... Well, yeah, they were in here. Yeah, they dropped a bunch of money. I can't give you a refund unless I get the books back in the same condition. And we got home and she was just so furious and we wouldn't tell her which books they were. So she confiscated all of our comic books. So I got a spanking from my mom and then she called my dad because my parents were divorced so that he would give us a spanking and know about this nefariousness. And then we went to we, we probably did chores and withheld allowance for a long, long time. But I guarantee you, I paid back every single nickel and then some. So you eventually earned those books. Yeah, but I don't know that I really learned the right moral lesson at the time. (laughs) I have the books to this day. And see, this is what it is to have a brother, right? I only have a sister, and if I had pulled off that kind of scam, my sister would have ratted me out in a second. (laughs) He did it! Check under his bed. They're there. I remember the guilty pleasure of finally being able to dig into them. Once I got the books back, months and months and months later, we finally read these issues, and it was amazing. And I was like, wow, it was totally worth all that that we went through. And I I have held one of these books in my hand, and it is, wow. There is a a feeling there you just can't imagine. Are Are any of them graded at this point? None of my collection is graded. And I'm a kind of a purist. I buy them for the stories. I even let Adam read my Hulk 181. I feel like the value of the comics are in the books themselves and not just owning a plaque that looks like the book, in my opinion. But then again, because of that, a lot of these key issues are not in as pristine condition as they once were. I get that. Yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you, though, because that, that's obviously how I feel. The, the few books that have any value that I own, it's definitely, for me, it's just this was meant to be read, and it is a key part of the story that I enjoy, and therefore, yeah, I'm never going to uh, get the gloop stick on it. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that Raggedy Ann and Andy Christmas special. This guy encases every toy in plastic so it can't be ruined. That's how <laughs> I feel about grading comics. Well, that's what trades are for. You buy the trades, you read the trades now. Yeah. Then you don't have to break open your comics anymore. 
I don't have anything graded, but I do have a few comics that like I got autographed by you know Scott Snyder or J. Scott Campbell that I put in frames, and they're just like okay, they're signed, they're gonna go away. But I also have a copy that I read as well, so that's just my thing. It's time again to take a break and remind you that Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, is sponsored this week by our good friends at MinifiguresMarket.com, your online source for the best in custom printed Lego minifigures. We're talking Wolverine this week, and you better believe you have your choice of Logan's many looks at MinifiguresMarket.com. From classic blue and yellow spandex to Weapon X to Old Man Logan, get your favorite version of the old Knucklehead today. Don't forget, you can also get your favorite icons of movies and TV like Edward Scissor hands the t-800 from terminator 2 and even the entire lineup of thundercats are available now so be sure to check out minifiguresmarket.com when you're looking for that gift for the geek in your life and now back to the show now, Jeff, you also mentioned in your collecting itself is that, you know, you were very heavy into X-Men. Do you have a full run of X-Men comics? I am missing very few from 94 or Giant Size X-Men until about 300. And uh, that's when I really stopped collecting X-Men comic books altogether. But from the launch of the all-new, all-different Giant Size X-Men number one, I mean, you have those 70s issues and forward, right? Yes, I have them all. I have multiple copies of many of them. Yeah, it's amazing. That's pretty cool. You mentioned 1994, and I'm guessing that is very close to where the obsession kind of started running out of gas. What can you tell us about, because you were so heavy into it, you're going to the comic book stores, you're doing everything you can, get your hands on these books. What changed? It was actually when I started picking up the books in 1988, collecting, I quickly realized there's multiple titles with this character that I want to collect. I don't have the funds to collect them all. And so I would pick the best ones, and I started following Chris Claremont's writing. And I didn't know it at the time. I was following his writing. I quickly looked at the Wolverines, and I said, I don't, this isn't the same character to me. It's easy to drop that by the wayside. Marvel Comics Presents Wolverine. It's easy to drop that by the wayside because I was searching for this story. And the only way I can describe it is, is like a pastiche writer. Do you guys know what pastiche is? I okay. don't know. So pastiche would be like uh, Robert E. Howard wrote Conan or Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote Tarzan or Arthur Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes. Once the original writer was gone, other writers went in and wrote multiple stories about these same characters, so much so that they're introduced plot flaws and you know timeline issues that could never happen because this many adventures couldn't happen to one dude that's just all there is to it and so those are pastiche writers and i always felt like when i looked at comic books there was the original writer someone who i knew the character that i identified with and then there was pastiche writers who were writing about the character but really didn't get the essence of the character in fact by 1991 i was very rarely picking up the newest ones off the newsstand i was picking up back issues we we spent all of our money on back issues and so i came into comic books but i immediately went to bronze age books i immediately went to the older books and collected mostly old old stuff the real death of things for me though is when they changed the character and they started retconning things and that really bothered me and i thought to myself this isn't worth it anymore i couldn't afford the money you know by 1991 wolverine was in like 27 different titles whether it's a you know, regular title or a, a guest appearance or something the other thing was and uh 
I didn't agree with the changes. They gave in the bone claws. You can't have bone icicles. The Marvel Universe Book of Weapons showed me the, his skeleton with the claws. There was no bone icicle crap then. And, and if you covered those with, with metal, they'd still be metal icicles. They wouldn't be razor-honed, forged claws like I was always told. And... You know, they turned him into this feral beast-looking thing with no nose and a pirate scarf on his head. And <laughs> it was like, who is this? And the, the comics themselves have changed dramatically. They brought on all these new artists that were cool at first, and then all of a sudden it's like you get sick of everybody having 10, 15 pockets on their outfits. And you get sick of these hyper-muscular body styles where their legs are like toothpicks and their arms are like tree trunks with these huge, just bulging veins and stuff. And you're like, I don't even like the art style anymore. And so it was easy to be pushed away. By the time... You guys are really picking up wizard and stuff. I was getting into high school and I was, you know, comic books were never the the most popular mainstream thing to go with. Girls were. Girls, right? (laughs) I chose a steady girlfriend over comic books and I abandoned comic books at the time because of that. And it was more along the lines of what you guys have already talked about with Chris Claremont leaving the X-Men. The change when Marvel was bought out and became publicly traded and they were incorporated in a, uh, you know, it became more about the money and, and, and driving sales than about storytelling. And some of those things were what influenced my decision to stop collecting. In my opinion, Marvel kind of sold out. They started exchanging good storytelling for greed and marketing. I mean, my mom used to watch when I was a kid, and I made fun of them, you know, as my stomach turns. And <laughs> But I realized that I was involved in a soap opera. These characters, it was a continuing story. It was one big evolution. I mean, Chris Claremont started in 1975 writing issue 94 with the all-new X-Men, but he helped out in in Giant Size X-Men number one with a suggestion. As he's passing Len Wein's office, they're trying to figure out how they're going to solve this problem with Krakatoa, a living mutant island and everything, and Chris popped his head in and kind of gave a suggestion. Well, what about Polaris? She's got these lines of magnetism. Can't she use her power, and basically what they did is they disrupted the lines of magnetism. The Earth continued rotating, kind of a Superman concept, and Krakatoa was launched into space. It was no longer gravitationally bound to Earth. And so Chris actually had a hand in Giant Size X-Men number one. So from Giant Size X-Men number one until New X-Men series number one in 1992, the third issue of that, 15 years, 16 years of writing, I followed it. And uh, when that was gone, so was I. I think that's a perfect starting point. Like you said, your end was our beginning and the beginning for many people. And that's why I think this uh, discussion today as we get into this issue is going to be really interesting because you are going to have that breadth of knowledge and that passion for the character featured on this November 1991 cover of Wizard issue number three, which is Wolverine as drawn by Eric Larson. Now, this is interesting here. I, I have to say, though, just to start off on the inside cover, they have their little blurb that says about our cover says wolverine has just been sighted slashing a wizard cape to pieces looks like our friend poof the wizard has gotten away safely wolverine can be found in his own monthly series x-men and popping up all over the marvel universe so first of all just historically for wizard the fact that the wizard character was finally given a name he just was featured in one of the banners in one of the sections you know but he's not puff the magic dragon poof the wizard but eric larson actually for me commits the cardinal sin of wolverine art 
and that is, if you look at the cover, it looks like a bunch of knives coming out of his hands, flat pieces of metal. And I, I, I wanted to talk to you about this, Jeff, real quick as we get into Eric Larson, but you look at the handbook of the Marvel Universe, or even like at this time, they'd released Marvel Universe Series 2 trading cards. There was Wolverine's Claws. There was a card that explained how it all works. And the way that John Byrne had always drawn them, you know, in those core years, is they had a dimension to them. They were circular, in, you know, as they came out. And so when you draw them flat, even like Todd McFarlane on that issue of Hulk, where Hulk is reflected in the claws of Wolverine, it's just, you don't get it. Well, Herb Tramp drew the claws originally as talons in the original appearances, Hulk 180, Hulk 181, and Hulk 182. They were flat, and the flat was the part that came out of his, his hand. And you're thinking, how could he cut anything with that? Because it's that doesn't even come to a point. But then when they went to the X-Men, a cross-section of them would be tear-shaped, where they were rounded on top, and they, they went down to a finely honed, razor-sharp point. They're about a foot long, they're about as long as his forearm, and they had a slight curve to them. What always bothered me, especially about 90s comics, is they would draw the claws like two feet long. And they're like huge. You're like, how would that fit in his forearm? Come on. But for me, the quintessential teardrop-shaped cross-section to a razor point. Yeah, that's, that's a perfect description. And Eric Larson, for those who don't know, he had a very interesting career, always seemingly on the heels of Todd McFarlane. Like, they both started at DC Comics, just kind of on minor titles. Like, Todd McFarlane was on Omega Men, and Eric Larson was on a relaunch of Doom Patrol. And then when Todd, as we just discussed Spider-Man 16, and that was his last issue. Eric Larson had already taken over on Amazing Spider-Man when McFarlane got his own title, and then when McFarlane leaves the the standalone Spider-Man title, then Eric Larson moved over to that for some runs on there where he was doing, like, you know, Revenge of the Sinister Six. But I do have to say, even if there's, not that it should always be a comparison, but for me, is it McFarlane Spider-Man or is it Eric Larson Spider-Man? I'm much more of an Eric Larson fan. Just his style of drawing in general. It is a little more cartoony, but Todd McFarlane's characters look like melting puppets to me. And Eric Larson's characters, they have this energy that flows out of them, even if sometimes, you know, their proportions are a little strange here and there. But Michael, I'm curious for you, where do you fall in in understanding Eric Larson and and knowing his work? I too remember his Spider-Man stuff. After we talked about the things last week, with McFarlane and the X-Force and everything. And now I'm like, man, his stuff was weird. And I, I don't love it as I kept looking on it further and further. And I, what you're saying, I agree with 100%. How about you, Jeff? Does the name Eric Larson even ring a bell? Not really. I mean, I had that Return of the Sinister Sticks book, but I didn't know names at the time. I do recognize the name as one of the comic book artists that left to form Image. They had left shortly after Chris Claremont did for almost the same reason. It's kind of ironic. But I don't recognize his work that well. And I mean, he's he's certainly most well known, I think, nowadays because of you know the the image connection, and then that he was able to launch his Savage Dragon comic book, which is still going to this day. He never stopped putting out issues. It's been a continuous release. It's what you want, Jeff. I mean, if you <laughs> if you're looking for a new character, you can jump on, and it's been the same creator and writer and artist all these years. Go get on the Savage Dragon oh, train. I- I, I remember seeing the Savage Dragon with this Finn Mohawk. Yeah. So, here in today's Wave Riders Wayback Machine.
in 1991 in November. I'm going to name a couple of movies that I think are uh, significant to the time. On November 13th of 1991 is the animated Beauty and the Beast. November 15th is the remake of Cape Fear. On November 22nd is the original Adams Family. And this last one that I'm going to point out, which I think is kind of interesting, on November 27th is My Girl, which I thought you would somehow, somehow have some sort of connection to, Adam. Somehow you <laughs> well, I, I am allergic to bees, so when Macaulay Culkin dies, spoiler, that was frightening to me. <laughs> now, in November of 91, when we talk about music... Four albums that were the most significant of that month. November 18th, U2 released Ouchatung Baby. Achtung! <laughs> Michael Jackson released Dangerous. Genesis released We Can't Dance, which I particularly like that album. And Ricky Martin had his first album, Ricky Martin. Really? That yeah. early? That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. It did not have Live and La Vida Loca. That would come later. Okay. This, this, this is not that Ricky Martin yet. But this was him uh, breaking off from Menudo for his solo career. Yes. Well, hey, listen, I'm sorry I got to jump off early. We'll definitely have you on again. We'll definitely have more time to talk. I'm so sorry I got to jump off to help my wife with our baby, but I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks. Hey, it was right. a pleasure, Michael. So long, Michael. All right. It's the Jeff and Adam show. Let's do this. Oh, man. <laughs> Pressure's on. Let me give a disclaimer. I never owned Wizard Magazine, so that's kind of weird. I, the one I did own, I was given, and in fact, years later, I gave it to Adam. I never purchased one. It's odd that I'm on a Wizards podcast because I was not a consumer of the product, but I did use the Overstreet comic book price guide, so I'm the competitor. All right, so let's get into the issue itself just real quick. A rundown of the table of contents here. We have an interview with Simon Bisley, and this interview itself is not an actual Wizard interview, which is to say they didn't conduct it. It says reprinted with special permission from Blast Magazine. I don't know where Blast Magazine was published, but I think it was the UK. But either way, Simon Bisley, for those who don't know, was an artist from the United Kingdom, who did a lot of stuff in like 2000 AD, so where Judge Dredd and those comics were going on. And he was known for doing a lot of different styles of artwork, whether it was painted artwork or he did stuff for like Doom Patrol, like we talked about earlier with Eric Larson, when it went a totally different direction. He was doing wild covers. He was also very famous for working on Lobo. So when Lobo came out, there's another quintessential 90s character. I remember. It was a Wolverine knockoff. Yeah, essentially. (laughs) And here's the quote that I'll just give you. This is all you need to know about the Simon Bisley interview. But he says, I like drawing big naked people with big lumps of metal in their hands. There you go. (laughs) I got to say, I mean, let's be honest. Comic books have changed dramatically over the years. And one of the other reasons why I really got out of comics in the 90s was the drawing style had changed. There had always been skimpily clad female characters in the books from day one, whether it was a skin-tight suit or whatever. But in the 90s, I mean, if you look at Jim Lee's art or if you look at Mark Silvestri, you've got females in really awkward poses for no reason. And it only got worse. And... When I quit collecting comic books, I would pop back in to have that nostalgia and try to catch up where the characters were. And I don't think I ever regretted my decision because, you know, a decade later, you got all artists use photo reference material for their work. But you've got guys like Greg Land who are tracing, not drawing, they're tracing. They're using a light table or, or they, they're taking images with Photoshop and they're changing them and they're saying that they're drawings. But he started using like hardcore pornography as the basis for his work, 
for comic books. And sometimes it even made the cover. And you could tell, you know, these faces and things. You're like, why? And so I never regretted my decision to leave comics because of that kind of thing. The cheesecake was over the top. And I got to tell you that, you know, Simon Bisley also, he was in favor of this because he's like, women with large breasts? I do like curvy women, so why shouldn't I draw them? I like to draw them whenever it's possible and appropriate. I do like them. Don't you? So, yeah, he was definitely on that train early, <laughs> contributing to that. But, yeah, so there, there's your Simon Bisley interview preview. That's all you needed to know. At the end of the issue, and we will get to this, is John Byrne back to the X house. Yep, we just talked about Chris Claremont leaving the book. Guess who they brought in to fill his shoes? Somebody was more than willing after many years, so we'll get into that. Also coming up, a bold new direction. This is a very interesting conversation we'll be having. Autographed New Mutants number 80. So you could actually win a copy of that. And Wolverine, the man behind the claws. And of course, you got your Wizards Comic Watch, grading your comics, the comic book price guide, trading cards, a new video game section. Speaking of reprints, that was from GamePro Magazine. They just took reviews from GamePro Magazine and got permission to reprint them, which I think is hilarious. And basically, GamePro was the wizard of the video game industry at the time, the magazine that had the attitude it had the flash and everything so i think it's very appropriate that there was some synergy in the early days egm always seemed like it was for the older kids like that was later high school college and game pro was for the young set then finally we have uh, the new top 10 picks from the wizard's hat and an actual letters page this time around but the one i wanted to start with here is they put it under a, a different section here which i thought was interesting they didn't actually list this conversation in the table of contents but but there was an article about alternative collections. And we've mentioned this here and there where people talk about, well, you can collect by artist, you can collect by writer, you can collect by character. Jeff certainly did a lot of that, collecting as many Wolverine issues as you you could. But um, one area in particular that they brought up that I don't think is mentioned very often is foreign releases. And one of the things that Jeff and I also have in common is that we both spent some time in Brazil. We both speak Portuguese. Portuguese, and being comics fans while we were there, we picked up comics in Portuguese, Brazilian editions of comics. And Jeff, I thought it'd be interesting if you could explain a little bit, what is the difference in the production style and presentation of, of the Brazilian comic books? The interesting thing about it, when you buy them, they're about a quarter of the size of a regular size comic book. They're these little tiny TV guide style books and they're usually thicker sometimes they have more than one book in the same binding at least the ones that i bought but i the older ones were more magazine size and i collected a few older ones and then once in a blue moon you'd find one that was the same comic book size that you're used to so they had three different styles and uh the names are pretty much the only thing that changed and what are some of the names like for example you know some were like direct translations so you had like omega for spider-man you know that just means spider-man and some of them they didn't even change at all like wolverine they didn't change it i mean they do have an animal that's very closely related down there but it's not they didn't change it so i have a, a copy of old Melior de wolverine and it's the best it just means the best of wolverine and it's a reprint of the limited four issue series from 1982 but some comic characters changed their name completely like the punisher became the Justicero, um, which means the deliverer of justice. <laughs> I picked up Os Fabulosos X-Men, the fabulous X-Men. Um, I picked up 
In fact, so yeah, I I have a sixth cover for X-Men number one because not only did I buy the five in the United States, but I bought one in Brazil as well. So I was duped <laughs> six times on that book. I bought I bought uh, Conan, the Espada Selvagem de Conan, or Conan o Barbero. But what I thought was fun is I picked up a lot of Almanaki Disney, which is the Disney Almanac. And it had, you know, all your regular characters. Donald Duck became Pato Duck. But like some characters... Their names changed completely. Chip and Dale became Tico y Teco. Goofy is Pateta. And it just means goofy. And an interesting thing about foreign comics as well, especially when you're looking at Disney ones, well, I guess some of the artists were not that familiar with Huey, Dewey, and Louie, or else they just lost track, and sometimes they would draw a fourth duck. And you can look <laughs> him up. There's a whole myth about this guy, Huey, Dewey, Louie, and Fooey, and he's named after... <laughs> Donald, Donald Duck would always say fooey when he was mad. Well, when the artist screwed up and drew an extra duck in the picture, and so he became known as the mysterious fourth nephew, Fooey Duck. That is great. Yeah, so, I mean, that is a real interesting way. Like, if you feel like you've gone to the, the farthest lengths with your collection, just remember, there's a lot of other countries in the world that enjoy comic books. Now, one thing I'll mention just on the Wizard front before we move off of this particular topic is that in Wizard issue 100, they actually mention that their first bootleg issue was the Jed 13 cover of Wizard, and they had a Brazilian publisher that was literally just republishing the entire magazine without consulting them in Brazil. And, you know, it was called Wizard, but I just thought that was interesting. Most of the comics that you'll find out there are legit, though, so that's good. The next thing real quick here, I just thought I'd mention, because Jeff brought it up earlier, Spider-Man and his amazing friends and Firestar. In the Wizard's Comics Watch section, they actually are mentioning mentioning some key issues they feel like are going to go up in value. And what they mention is that there was an Uncanny X-Men number 193, which was a special double-sized issue. And in there, it says that it was actually the first appearance of Firestar in the Marvel 616 continuity. So this is where she okay, was Okay, okay. I was going to say, uh, wait a minute, that's not true because they made a one-off issue of Spider-Man and his amazing friends and that was her first appearance, but it wasn't the regular continuity so yeah right and she eventually also shortly after got her own mini series there was that yeah. big period like 1985 to 1986 yeah. or so they were everybody was getting a mini series wolverine and kitty pride but she eventually went on to join the new warriors wizard was assuming that she was going to become a real key character it was going to be something really special but to my knowledge like that doesn't seem to be the case i don't think she no, ever had I, a key storyline you know in that book that they're talking about she was a villain Oh, really? Yeah, she was brainwashed by the Hellfire Club had minions. I can't remember what their names were. But one of the guys had a power where he could influence you, and she thought she was in love with this guy. And so she was kind of like the New Mutants. She was the New Mutants version for the Hellfire Club. She was one of these people who believed that the X-Men were evil. She was attacking them for her boyfriend, and she started out as a villain. Wow, that's fascinating. I did not know that. That's very cool. Sorry, Firestar. Somebody needs to pick that up now. It's time. Everybody's getting reefed familiarized with Spider-Man and his amazing friends on Disney Plus. Oh, thank heavens it's there. I'm so glad it's there. Yeah. I've been waiting for so long. I know. I've just had like scattered VHS tapes and other things over the years. So it's a good time to be a fan of that cartoon. So next up, just as we wrap up our table of contents rundown here, the 
discussion here that they have, it says, what are the four scariest words a comic fan can hear associated with his favorite character? A bold new direction. And this is specifically targeting DC comics, where they just say, nowadays it seems DC is convinced an old character won't work unless it's been revamped, retooled, and in some cases, totally replaced. And so they they give a whole bunch of examples from things like a Martian Manhunter miniseries. Howard Chaikin did the series called Twilight that just took like all the old 50s and 60s sci-fi characters from DC Comics and made it real dystopian. And so they and they just got you know things like Challengers of the Unknown and Adam Strange. They're saying like some worked and some didn't, but for the most part, they're not in favor of it. And I don't know, like, have you had that experience, Jeff? I mean, you talked about with Wolverine, like a bold new direction with bone claws and everything else. But are there other characters that you've noticed where it's been like at least infamous? Oh man, there's so many different characters that have completely changed ghost rider i mean i remember i had ghost rider number 50 that had the original ghost rider who was a cowboy with six shooters and ghost rider on a harley davidson next to each other johnny blaze ghost rider and then i picked up that number one in the 90s with the new ghost rider on like a bullet bike there's been changes to all the characters i mean when the whole he started out gray went green my brother was like why is he gray we didn't know we had to read all the books um we didn't like like professor hulk that's the thing Professor oh, okay. Hulk. We were like, oh, this is so dumb. Why? <laughs> Why? The Hulk is a rampaging beast. I always refer to him as Fabio Hulk because oh. he just looked like he was always posing and he was like, got his shirt unbuttoned down to his navel. You know, he's just like, hey, you yeah, know? Yeah. That's, that's an example that my brother would really latch onto that he detested. I mean, that's probably the end- ending point of comics for him was Professor Hulk. The one that always stood out, not that I was ever a super big fan of Dr. Fate, but I was thought he had a cool look. He had the helmet, he had the cape, you know, he got the yellow and blue color scheme. That's awesome. But in the mid-90s, right after Zero Hour, they rebooted Dr. Fate, and they just called him Fate. And he became just exactly what you were talking about earlier, Jeff, like just his straps and pouches and a big, like, shoulder armor piece and he had a sword, and he looked nothing at all like the character. He had daggers that were like the Egyptian Ankh. Oh, like that's a Moon Knight ripoff there. Yeah. <laughs> that cracked me up when I remember seeing that back in the day. I was like, huh? But yeah, th- those are just a couple of quick hits we wanted to get out of the table of contents. You know, I really don't know what we're going to do. When this magazine gets fully fleshed out like it will, the 10 or 12 issues, there's going to be a lot more content. So <laughs> I think we're just going to have to be a little bit more selective. But let's move on to our next segment, Heroes in Motion. So, this is an interesting thing where you go back to Pat McCollum's column. Maybe I need to call him McCallum so it doesn't seem so confusing. But in his Collecting Comics in the 90s section here, he goes ahead and is talking about movie adaptations in comics. Back in the day, movies would play in a theater and then they were gone. Like, home video was our lifetime as we were growing up. But back in the day, you had to wait until there was a re-release of a film if you wanted to see it again. Or a film like Star Wars 
Wars, for example, would just stay in theaters forever. You know, still playing after two years, Star Wars. But a movie adaptation, there's the versions that is literally just taking the story and then it's over. Like, say, like, there's the Batman 1989. There's a great adaptation there that I think was Jerry Ordway and Denny O'Neill writing it. And so you're like, okay, this is a good adaptation. But it's not like they continued in that Tim Burton movie universe. Although it did have some very cool deleted scenes that were in the original script they were working from. But I'm curious for you, Jeff, are there any movie adaptations that you've either sought out or that you can recall that that stand out to you i remember most of the movie adaptations came out in either a mini series of one to three books or they came out in like a magazine format like a graphic novel and some of the ones that i own for sure would be like dragon's lair oh really based on the video game no, oh no. dragon slayer dragon slayer based on the curly-headed guy from ghostbusters 2 that's right janosh yeah, <laughs> fighting yeah. dragons fighting venom thrax yeah i have that of course i have i've been Indiana Jones fan. I have all of the Indiana Jones movie adaptations. The interesting thing about that is they did start a Marvel series after that. They called it Indiana Jones and his continuing adventures. And I have most of those. Yeah, Marvel was pretty famous for that, actually, because they did that with Star Wars as well. So, like, after the initial movie came out, they adapted it, and then they just went their whole other direction while everybody was waiting. You know, you didn't know Empire Strikes Back was happening, you know? So they're just like, here's the whole universe as we see fit. There's green rabbits in this universe and whatever else yeah totally totally off the wall stuff is happening that that never made it into canon yeah it's it's fun place to find weird stuff yeah and i know for me especially there's one in particular that's a lot of fun most people not a favorite film of theirs maybe a favorite film to laugh at but xanadu with olivia newton john (laughs) is a very special movie to me in my childhood Wait, you're, you're saying that they made the comic book adaptation of Xanadu. They did. And it's a musical. I don't know. It's very short. Like, the majority of the book is behind-the-scenes interviews. And, like, you know, they show, like, sketches of the costumes and all that type of stuff. And then you just have, like, this very brief interpretation of the story with the characters. Oh, she's a muse, and he's an artist, and what else? Like, you know, like, there's, there's not much more to it if you don't have ELO songs or leaving it John singing. And so, but... <laughs> It's very special to me because I have a friend, uh, Johnny Caps, who's a good buddy, and he actually went to a convention and had the male star of that film, Michael Beck, signed. My Marvel <laughs> super special adaptation of Xanadu is now signed on the cover. That is a treasure, man. Put it up on the wall. See if Olivia Newton-John comes out in roller skates. Yes, there we go. Now, uh, the one thing, though, that Pat McCollum brings up here that I think is very valid is that he says... The the most important factor is distribution. These issues are usually found only at comic shops and newsstands, but not in the one place where they would be most effective, the theaters. And so he talks about how there was one theater that like put out the Batman adaptation and a lot of people bought it. And he's saying really what these should be used as is a way to get people into comics, right? They love a movie, and they're like, oh, there's a comic book version? I love the movie so much, let me read it. And maybe they start getting interested in the comic book format, and then you have new readers from that. Interesting. Thinking back, I had children's books that were movie adaptations. I had Clash of the Titans, and they were drawn in comic book style with panels, so I guess I do have a, a quite a few more than I remember. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that that's something that could really work now because, you know, this is a big problem nowadays in the comic book industry is they seem to really be catering to our generation. It's a nostalgia industry now in a lot of ways. And it seems to be really hard to get new readers to come in. And I think with the popularity of comic book movies, it seems like people love the movies, so they're going to want to go read the books. That doesn't seem to be happening. So there's got to be some like way digitally to get like an adaptation in front of people some sort of like you know youtube commercial that pops up and it shows a few panels and it's like oh want to read more click here and then you can download the issue or whatever we discovered them on spinner racks at 7-eleven that doesn't exist anymore you can't go to a store and find printed comics unless it's a specialty shop and that's a problem if you're trying to build new readership we discovered these heroes through movies or through television or through cartoons or whatever and we came and found the stories and loved them in the books I think that the same should hold true for the Marvel Comics movies you learn about the characters you love them you come and then read what the stories are in the books yeah but it's time to move into a new segment just for this episode we're calling it Stick It a Wolverine Character Discussion I don't think it was ever meant to be uttered by human vocal cords. Snicket? I mean, in my mind, I always read it as synced. Oh. <laughs> like the sound of like a metal hitting something, but it's actually snicked. And in fact, one of the artists tried to change that. He changed the spelling of it to synced. I forget who it was. And the editor caught it and said, whoa, this is established. You've got to have it this way. Because he drew it in the plotting and when he was drawing it, and the writer went back in and changed it. And so snicked is the way I've learned it now. But I, in my mind, I've always read it as synced. See, and I've always done stick it, you know, because I thought that was stick it. <laughs> Here's a little Wolverine fact. Wolverine has total articulation of his claws. We learned that, you know, when he does the dirty, hairy thing and he puts claws on both sides of a guy's head. And then he says, are you ready for the third claw? That kind of thing. But he can also pop his claws out partially. It doesn't have to go full distance. And when he does, the sound is then just snick. It's S-N-I-K without the T on the end because they never lock fully into place. Uh, it's actually interesting to recognize that when you retract, it's like snack. Yeah, well, see, and I read it as sanct. <laughs> it would have been snacked. <laughs> uh, but in as we mentioned, there's an article here at the, the end of the magazine, The Best There Is at What He Does, Wolverine, The Man Behind the Claws. And this is just a very brief discussion of the character. But one one of the things that it starts out saying here is such a complex individual is only the result of a decade and a half of intensive character development. In fact, the character that made his debut in a brief appearance at the end of Incredible Hulk number 180 hardly resembled the modern day character at all. He had no adamantium skeleton, no healing factor, not even forearm housings for his claws, which were initially designed to be telescoping points that were part of his gloves. So right there is already interesting because there's so many beliefs and rumors and legends that were surrounding Wolverine in, in the history of the character, as they mentioned there. But, Jeff, you have a distinction. I don't know of anybody else online who has created such an intensive look at the character. But because you have all these key issues and this run of the X-Men comic book, you actually put together a 
18 entry series on RetroDays.org. It's called Wolverine, A Reader's Perspective. And this is a fascinating look because literally what Jeff has done here is he's gone through each book each appearance ever of Wolverine, starting with Hulk 180, and going forward, discovering, okay, what did they reveal about the character? What do we know about him at this point, then this point, and now what have they added to the mythos, so on and so forth. And I think it, it was just amazing to read through that again. It's it's something that's it's been up for a couple years now, because the things that you will learn, among others, uh, you'll see the first time that Adamantium is revealed to be magnetic, first time Wolverine appeared without his mask, You'll learn Wolverine's rank in the Canadian military. You'll find proof that he reads Hustler magazine and wears black underwear. (laughs) But Jeff, I'm just, I'm so curious for you. What was the genesis of that particular project? The retcons, where they changed the continuity, where they changed the character so dramatically over the years, I'm like, that's not the way it was presented. I mean, people can argue about what's the official Marvel stance. What's his real name? Well, everybody's going to tell you James Howlett. Well, For 15 years, his name was Logan, period. And the way I took an approach to that is, what did we know and when did we know it? Because it changed how the character was. And the the behind-the-scenes on that also changed how the character was. So, like, you read this little blurb about Wolverine in in the Wizard magazine, and I agree with most of it, but some of it is just a fallacy. Len Wein... And Herb Trimp are writing the, the Hulk first appearances of Wolverine. And in that very first appearance, we learn a lot of things that people will always say happened way later. But they happened right there in the first issue. In Hulk 181, in his first full appearance, the Incredible Hulk smashes him down with bone-smashing force. Well, his bones don't shatter. So right there, we already know he has unbreakable skeleton. We know that because it's plainly written there. The urban legend is, is that Len Wein developed this character as a throwaway character just to survive a battle with the Hulk and the Wendigo. And that's not true either. He was already in the running for editor-in-chief. He knew that there was an upcoming relaunch of the X-Men. In fact, he had been pushing for it for years. He specifically made him a mutant, and we knew that from the get-go. He was a mutant. We knew that the Claws, while there was some debate on whether or not they were part of the costume or in him, he always says, like if you look at later Len Wein interviews, he'll say that I designed practical costumes, and I would have never made telescoping claws, and I would have never made it as part of the suit. But Chris Claremont definitively designed the claws to be part of his body, and we learned that later on in the X-Men. But things that you learn from the very first issue the very first time he appears is that he has incredible speed in fact he says the best of what i do is speed not killing people he has admanium claws and a fun fact is they're always shown to be retractable or retractile depending on your verb usage there retractable just means that they can they can go back in retractile is usually used in the animal kingdom when you're talking about claws and so either way retractable retractile the very first issue definitively shows his claws retracted and people will say that didn't happen until giant size x-men number one well that's not true yeah and one thing i want to mention too is that you know this is pretty well known at this point but i think i even made the erroneous statement back in the day most people will say wolverine's first appearance officially is a hulk 180 because he shows up you know in the final panel i usually refer to it as 181 because that's the first First full full. story where you actually see him so you usually have to make that distinction but then he also appears in 182 so he was actually around for a, a full three issues of hulk it wasn't just like one key issue i mean not that he was involved heavily in the story in 182 but he's there at the beginning there's a lot of things that changed over the years that i just didn't agree with and i'm like well this is how it was for a long long time 
And so that's why I started the series. And maybe one day I'll finish the series. Yeah, I mean, it, it's already like a, so many key moments in there. There's a few more that really stood out to me as I was going back to reread it. The first time that Wolverine calls someone Bub, Bub. he's talking to Iceman and like they're getting in a fight. You know, you talked earlier about, you know, is it Logan? Is it James Howlett? All those things. The first time that his name is revealed to be Logan, it is spoken by a leprechaun. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick, uh, the leprechaun in issue 103, says Mr. Logan. In fact, Logan is his last name, not his first name. Yeah. And so a lot of people don't know that either. But Logan is his last name. The second time you hear Logan is not in an X-Men comic book. It's in Iron Fist number 15 by the same team, Chris Claremont and John Byrne. And there's a little caption box and it says his name is logan though almost no one knows it he likes it that way because names are shared with friends and above all else wolverine is a loner or was these days he's not so sure you know you see logan pop up a few other times he tries to tell his name so one of the big hang-ups is that he was so devastated about thinking that gene gray had died and she never knew his real name and he was devastated because he thought he was in love with her he wasn't going to make that mistake twice, found a new person while they were in Japan, Mariko. And when he got to know her, he tried to tell her his name in 118. He got out low and then there was an earthquake. He wasn't able to finish it until issue 120. When they were leaving Japan, he handed her a white chrysanthemum and said, Mariko-chan, my name is Logan. John Byrne took Mariko from, in fact, the whole Japanese concept from the novel, the 1970 James Clavell's novel Shogun. And so... A foreigner goes to a foreign land. He's in Japan. He's, you know, a white guy. He becomes a, a samurai. And he has a love interest who is already married to someone else named Mariko. And so if you want to know where that comes from, John Byrne had been reading it. Chris Claremont hadn't read it yet. They decided we need another throwaway character to show Wolverine's soft side because originally he had been written as a jerk because Dave Cochran and Chris Claremont really didn't like him. Cochran loved Nightcrawler. And so... I mean, if you look at some of the covers, I mean, Wolverine is either prone, beat up, or it's the back of his head on on many a many X-Men cover. <laughs> but then John Byrne came on being a Canadian. He loved him. He wanted to, to champion this character. And he said, you can't write out the only Canadian character. And things changed. And so they needed some kind of backstory to flesh this guy out. And the whole Japanese aspect with Mariko came from John Byrne, which he ended up not liking once the miniseries came out because he didn't want him to be a ninja. Yeah, and he is officially a ninja. Traded Jitsu by Ogun. Yep. He was also a long time before that in the devil's brigade uh, in world war ii and uh those are little details that an, an, absurd, an astute reader could pick out over time and they were changed so dramatically like his world war ii experience if you just want to talk about world war ii he's in the devil's brigade which is a you know the first special service canadian division of commandos they were trained in martial arts, they were trained in jiu-jitsu, they were trained in judo, they were trained in Okinawan karate, they were trained in boxing. They were sent, you know, various places during World War II. That's where he got his parachute wings that you see his wings on his uniform in later X-Men issues. That's where he got them from. But later on, you get writers like Daniel Way that have changed all of that, where at one point he's he's in Normandy. At another point, he's getting blown up by an atomic bomb in the Pacific Theater. So he's in the European Theater and the Pacific Theater of World War II. Or he's in, a, he's in a, a German prison camp as Prisoner Zero. Or he's being married at the time to some chick named Itsu and having a child that becomes Dakin or Wolverine 2 or whatever it was. There's all these changes that happened. How could he be in all these places at the same time? You know, prior to that, he was in Matterport and he met Captain America for the first time with a Jim Lee story. 
I got that right here in front of me. This is like my favorite Jim Lee cover with the Black Widow and Captain America and Wolverine. Actually, I mean, that's actually one of Jim Lee's first books. That's the first one where I took notice of his, you know, and I love Jim Lee artwork. But if you look through that, check out the cheesecake with Natasha Wolfe, the black Psylocke and everybody else. Just the the popularity of Wolverine at the time, like Michael said, I mean, he he really was just popping up everywhere. You you couldn't escape him, including the Marvel Universe Series 1. He actually had three separate cards. So he had the tan and brown, he had his blue and yellow, and then he had his patch outfit. And I think that's interesting because the only other character in that series that also had three separate cards was spider-man that's not even to mention all the teams he was involved in plus the battle cards and an interview with spider-man yeah (laughs) the other part john byrne he had that collaboration with chris claremont and that eventually ended i was listening to an interview with him he's like you know the reason i left the book initially he was only on it for four years but those were like the four most pivotal years 1977 to 1981 and he was in there yeah defining these characters for the readers but he said i got to the point where I didn't like what Chris was writing, and therefore I did not like the X-Men. I didn't want to be drawing something I didn't like, so I left the book. You know, it's just it just came down to that simple for him, seemingly. And it's it's a shame that Michael had to leave early because one of the pivotal moments was Kitty Pride for John Byrne. John Byrne had been drawing all of these characters, and they had come out with these amazing, you know, the Phoenix Saga, Days of Future Past, and they. At one point, they decided they were going to kind of do a day in the life perspective of these characters to get them to get to know them better. And they were John was drawing Kitty Pryde reading a Star Wars comic and just being a teenager and being a kid. And he had challenged Chris Claremont to write this as a normal girl. Yes, she has phasing powers, but write her as a normal girl. Well, when Chris got the artwork in the dialogue, he changed her into a super genius. He figured the Fantastic Four had Reed Richards. All the different teams had their genius. The X Men really didn't have one at that time, so he wanted to make her a genius and. John was like, I'm fed up. I try to make these characters. We agree on something, and then you change it last minute, which is almost exactly what happened with Jim Lee and Chris Claremont. And so it's interesting to see why he left. Speaking of John Byrne and Jim Lee, let me read you a little quote here. John Byrne says, I wanted to change Wolverine's duds from the very first moment I set eyes on him. Yellow and blue, that's a football team, not a wild animal, and an American football team no less. So as soon as I could, I gave Wolverine the brown-on-brown costume which you referred to as the brown on tan. And I still remember Jim Lee telling me proudly that he had given Wolverine his real costume, the yellow and blue one, back. And I also remember the long pause on the other end of the phone when I mentioned that I was the one who had changed the costume. (laughs) And so these little differences where people, in my mind, the creative teams stopped researching. They stopped looking into the character's history or reading where this started. And they just started making up stuff or changing stuff that they didn't like. And so I went the same way as John Byrne and Chris Claremont. I stopped being in love with these characters. And even Jim Lee, when he realized that, hey, I don't have any control over these characters, he left too. And that's when he went to Image. Yeah, well, it's interesting as we close out on John Byrne here is that as soon as Chris Claremont leaves, Marvel just taps John Byrne. They're like, okay, you're in. You can do it. And so he comes in and this interview that he's giving to Wizard, basically what he's saying is I'm just going to take it back to my point that I left. Because, like, for example, at this point in X 
factor, which was another, I know, sore point for Chris Claremont that that was written without him, was you know, Apocalypse, Apocalypse turned Apocalypse. Angel into Archangel. Metal Wings. Yeah, Metal Wings, and that was how the action figure was released, and it was very popular, but John Byrne says, he's the first one I'm going to be campaigning for major changes in. Sorry, Walton Wheezy. I want him back as the Angel as fast as possible. I've already told Bob I don't really like the furry beast, but he does, so I told him I'd trade. I'll let him keep the furry beast if they'll let me turn the Angel back into his real self. One of the reasons I want to do that, of course, is that I know Angel, and I'm not really sure who Archangel is. Call it lazy if you want, but I'd rather have the characters in the state where I recognize them. I think that was a huge problem Marvel-wide, where whatever new creative team came on board wanted to do that. John Byrne, he did the Fantastic Four run, and then the interesting thing about that interview is that after he gives this interview and says he's so excited, and so he only does I think it's issue four through seven in the new series, and he only does like five issues in the Uncanny X-Men series, and then he's gone. Because (laughs) the powers that be said this is the way the X-Men are going to be, you have no choice of it. And then the the cartoon came out at the time, you know, based based on Jim Lee's concepts of their costumes and things. And so this longevity of what had happened, most modern people recognize the X-Men from the cartoon or the movies, and nobody wanted to go back to where John Byrne wanted to take it back to. And so he was dropped very quickly. That's very common with John Byrne. I mean, even on Sensational She-Hulk, which is one of my favorite runs, he's on it for like the first few issues that he has disagreements with the editor and he disappears and they do like 25 issues without him or something. And then he comes back and he does a few more issues, but they still won't let him do 100% what he wants to do. So he goes, and I know he's known as being a difficult guy, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, you know, I don't think so. What he is, is he's a fan and he loves these characters and he imagines them a certain way and if he's gonna do his version he's gonna do his version if you're not gonna let him do that he's not writing to the status quo and the majority of the time when he gets to do what he wants to do people are happy with it like i think he had a run on wonder woman in the 90s not very good but generally speaking man of steel was a very big deal everybody enjoyed that and he you know he's he's had good takes on iron man and and other characters over the years it's just that i think ultimately he either tells the story he wants to tell and then he's kind of like, well, I don't really have anywhere else I want to go with this. Or like, like I say, he starts getting the editorial constraints and he's just like, well, why do you have me on the book then? Because this is what I was brought on to do. This is what I was agreed to do. And oh, fine, I'll, I'll go now. <laughs> so he went to creator own stuff eventually. I, I totally agree on that. We saw that time and again. They said, let's make an Alpha Flight book based on the popularity of the X-Men. Well, John had created the Alpha Flight as a team that could stand up and survive a battle with the X-Men, he said, well, if somebody's going to write it, let me write it. He wrote it for a little bit, disagreed with the way that they wanted the characters to be portrayed, and then somebody else was writing it. I think, basically, this problem right after the X-Men, John Byrne left Marvel also, and then he went on to do his next men. And I think that's probably the first time he let his creative beast loose and do what he wanted to do. Yeah, and I can't wait to talk about next men down the line because that's a, a favorite of mine. But now that we've had a nice conversation about Wolverine, I think the one thing we have to do to cap it off, though, Jeff, is definitive Wolverine costume. Oh, brown and tan. I'm with John Byrne on this. I mean, the blue and yellow never made sense. Football shoulder pads never made sense. Brown was more sneaky. It looked like the animal that he was named after brown and tan all the way that has always been for me as well i mean think it was a dave cockrum thing it had to have been the fang costume that he got for that brief run where they're in space john byrne hated that costume it was so difficult to draw because of all the teeth 
around his yeah. neck. And so as soon as he could, he tried to get rid of it, and he introduced the brown and tan, which is a very similar concept also to his Sabretooth costume that he designed in the pages of Iron Fist. Iron Fist 14 was the first appearance of Sabretooth, and John Byrne had drawn a face for Wolverine and then learned that Dave Cochran had already unmasked him and he had drawn this Widow Peak and he was older, but he had drawn a much younger face and they decided to use that for Sabretooth. So Logan's face originally became Sabretooth's face. And in the Iron Fist 14, he talks about you know, fighting this feral saber tooth. In the next issue, Iron Fist meets the X Men, and he he notices the similarities between Wolverine and Sabretooth. And he facts, I wonder, you know, are they related or whatever? And it was the start of this where they were trying to introduce that possibly Wolf, or Sabretooth was Wolverine's father. That didn't turn out because Larry Hama and other writers took over and changed what Chris Claremont had envisioned. The last thing I'll just mention about the costumes is uh, Jeff and I both we love our action figures and the Toy Biz X Men action action figure line had so many wolverines every wave had at least one new wolverine sometimes two and i had all of them like i had you know the initial one that there was released yeah that that was the brown and tan and then they released one in the more jim lee style the yellow and blue then yellow and blue with the mask and then they, they had so many different variations that were strange too because they had a monster version and a well yeah monster version eventually they had spacesuit wolverine they had even one that was uh, not Wolverine, but Albert, who was like this robot that was the meant to look work, like yeah. Wolverine. His arms could pop off like damage. And yeah, so I mean, there was just constantly a, a new Wolverine every time you looked around. All right. And so now uh, we're going to jump into another segment here, another new one. We're, we're bringing it to you new this time. In lieu of Robin's Reading Rainbow, we've got Uatu's Uncanny Tales. And so what we have here, this is a fun uh, juxtaposition here, because as we know, in Wolverine's first full appearance in Hulk 181, it is a showdown between Wolverine and the Hulk. And we love What If Tales here on uh, Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, as you will soon find out. And... In the original run of What If Comics, issue number 31 from 1977, they introduced the concept, what if Wolverine had killed the Hulk? And Jeff, what can you tell us about the fine points of this particular story, how they imagined it going another way? Well, basically, Wolverine had been sent to capture the Hulk or push him out of Canadian territory. And that's true with the original comic as well in, in Hulk 181. But at some point, he decides this is a stalemate. I can't win this fight. I'm just trying to capture him. I'm going to kill him and get rid of the threat altogether. And so Wolverine keeps chopping at the Hulk's neck, which he determines is a vulnerable point, And it cuts his throat out and kills the Hulk. And it changes the course of history, as we know, of what all of the What If comic books do. They change one little minor change in history, changes the line of characters for, from then on. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you know, you mentioned that originally Wolverine's written as a jerk. And here he is. Basically, this is what if Wolverine continued to be a jerk? 
how far would it take him down that that dark hole because after he kills the hulk then he's like bragging about it in a bar and then it gets to this point where instead because he kills a guy in a bar fight you know now he's just like super dark and he's open for magneto to lure him into the brotherhood of evil mutants but then he joins the x-men anyway but undercover and so wolverine's in there but of course falls in love with gene gray so then that leads to his death that was a real interesting like if he had killed the hulk then he himself is going to die yeah (laughs) what did you think about that jeff I mean, it was it was crazy because it's written the same way that it, his sensibilities. Wolverine never killed anybody up until a certain point, unless it was in self defense. He never did. He had this moral code, whether if it was in war, it was a wartime thing, and he was protecting the people back home, or he was protecting himself, or whatever. He had no qualms about killing somebody, but he always had this moral code. And even in this version, he goes into the bar fight, and he's just fighting these guys, six or seven guys, and then one of them pulls a gun on him. And then it, it amps up the threat level response. And so when the weapon comes out, his weapons come out and he kills this guy. But he still feels remorse. He still feels terrible about killing this guy. He goes back to Alpha Flight and Hudson says, you know, you've got to face the law. You killed somebody, Logan. And so he runs away and Magneto finds him at this vulnerable moment and says, we will protect you. You know, we share the same views as you. We understand it was self-defense. But will you help us against this other band of evil people the x-men and so he says yeah i'll do it joins up because he has nowhere else to go infiltrates them falls in love in fact gene gray in this issue is is the one that supposedly changes his mask i mean in real comic books we know that giant size x-men number one was drawn by gil kane and he messed up on the whiskers type mask that herb trimp had drawn he didn't realize it was whiskers and he colored it in more batman-esque and dave cockrum on the interior pages thought it was cool and kept up with it so it changed the mask but in this story they give a uh, an explanation where gene says what's with this ferocious mask so wolverine changes his mask for her and then in the end the, the you know when magneto attacks he tries to kill gene gray he had fallen in love with him he had made a deal and said hey don't kill Jean Grey. I'm still on your team, but you've got to promise not to kill her. When Magneto tries to kill her, he switches teams and he dies saving this woman with the same set of morals where he's defending someone. He dies as an X-Men as a hero, even though he was portrayed as a villain or doing villainous things. Yeah. So it's a real interesting tale. And I think what I like about this issue is it is a simple story to follow. And it's following Wolverine. It's not tied up in a whole lot of continuity. Again, it's the alternate universe version of it, but it it's a pretty simple time in X-Men storytelling. There wasn't all this like intergalactic stuff happening yet. There wasn't interdimensional stuff with demons and whoever else, you know, and getting involved. So I enjoyed that. But as a, a juxtaposition to this, when Marvel relaunched What If in the in the late 80s, in Volume 2, Issue 50, which does feature an enhanced cover here, where you've got a Wolverine skeleton in front of a headstone, and Hulk's face is reflected in it. It's embossed, but it's called What If Hulk killed wolverine now when i initially got this i thought it was going to be the flip side right i thought it was going to be oh so they're just going to take that story and say okay what if when they first met hulk killed wolverine but that's not what it is this goes back to that issue we mentioned briefly that todd mcfarlane drew in the incredible hulk 340 
where Wolverine and Grey Hulk faced off. And so I thought that was an interesting place to start. But the Hulk at this point when he's Grey Hulk, the difference is he can reason somewhat. He's a surly jerk, but he can talk. He's not Professor Hulk, but but he is more like a human being yeah, than just a raging monster. The Joe Fixit era. But the thing that really confuses me in this book because basically all it is is hulk it says that hulk knocks him so hard that it dislodges one of his adamantium laced vertebrae and that's what kills him (laughs) and i was like well okay but then the problem is the majority of the story wolverine is dead and now the hulk is in this kind of like fantasy realm because there's this guy called the adversary who's trapped forge and storm in this alternate dimension area like if there's so much weird X-Men continuity going on in this book that I'm totally lost. Like, I didn't read those books, so I can't follow it. I don't know, oh, this changed this and this changed this. Well, see, Adam, all that comes from the fall of the mutants. During the fall of the mutants, the adversary had trapped the X-Men. They'd gone to Dallas, and the X-Men die in the public's eye to save humanity. It's basically one of those cosmic chess games. Like literally, there's yeah. a chessboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're using heroes. They're using heroes and they're like, this is my guy. Well, the adversary had the Hulk. He was trying to pit him against the X-Men. And so in the original 340 book, Wolverine is in Dallas and he happens upon the X-Men and they hadn't seen each other since Hulk 81. And Wolverine, oddly enough, is trying to avoid a fight. He's like, look, man, I'm not into it. But Hulk is like, he doesn't know who I am, but I'm going to I'm gonna show him what's up because last time we didn't finish. <laughs> he knocked out Wolverine, but it was essentially a stalemate. And so in this book, you got to remember, this is also before Wolverine could survive an atom bomb. I mean, the ways to kill Wolverine was to sever his head. You know, if you had some way to sever his head and detect it from his body or if you could drown him or things like that but in this comic book he hits him hard enough to dislocate his head in the original meeting with the green hulk he hit him hard enough to knock him out but it was a glancing blow because wolverine senses saved him and he turned his head just to the last moment and it knocked him out most people would be killed outright by any punch but hulk in this one they broke his neck it was just it was a very convoluted issue for me so i did not enjoy it as much and i think ultimately that's why i never got into the x-men in any great period of of my reading it was always just here and there or like a couple issues of classic x-men or something like that Uh, either way i think it's just fun to see that idea of okay there's there's two versions of the story (laughs) where where one killed the other and uh, i think i have to say i'd rather that wolverine had killed the hulk if we're gonna go that direction (laughs) (laughs) at least wolverine died a hero there's also consequences for the hulk because the x-men die because the x-men you know they become invisible to people in the in the main continuity but they're not dead in this one the x-men die because of the hulk's action so still consequences maybe the writers need to learn that that there's consequences when you change the history yes quite a quite an interesting experiment there as we close out here we've had wow just such an in-depth discussion but i wanted to have a little bit of fun you know uh, we did this last episode and i think that we're just going to make this a regular segment because i'm remembering that in later issues wizard eventually develops what they call the cbiq which is this whole comic book quiz that they give you each issue so we've created a new segment it's called Riddle me this. There is a win a Rob Liefeld autograph New Mutants 87. And for those of you who don't know, first appearance of Cable. Well, as an adult, as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, the first appearance of Cable, not Nathan Summers. How about that? Yeah, he was a baby in, in the X-Men, so. And so what we have here is a six-question quiz, which would get us an autographed copy of this. So I thought, Jeff, we'd have a little fun here. We'll run down and see how well our knowledge serves us, all right? Uh, question number one. The Green Lantern that gave Hal Jordan his power ring. I have no clue. I was a Marvel guy, so DC... <laughs> Did you see the movie? Did no, you see the Ryan Reynolds film? I, I had heard that it bombed, and so I avoided it. Well, the name of that Green Lantern who was on his deathbed and passed the ring to Hal Jordan was Abin Sur. Yeah, I'm already out. All right, now here's a good one, though. You're, you're going to get this one. Number two, one of my favorites, Jennifer Walters, Alter Ego. The She-Hulk. That was the last character that Stan Lee created. This is the question I have, though, because they said that. But remember Ravage 2099? He was the one that wrote that. And it was like the worst of the 2099 books, but that was the big deal. Stan's back with a new character. So the I think worst. that the history worst. changed. They were all the worst. The- oh. oh, no. But OK, so that was the last character that I knew of that he created. <laughs> That's the last real character. <laughs> yeah, I had I had the Savage She-Hulk number one. I knew who created it, but I stopped collecting during that 2099 business. And- That's one area where we definitely differ, because that was my jam, for sure. I loved all my 2099 books. In my room, I have a huge display where I took all the covers, and I framed them, and they're all together. I may have a few of those books for you, then. All right. Okay, next question, number three. DC Comics The Atom. Like his alter ego? Yeah. I have no idea. No clue. You're you're not watching Legends of Tomorrow. You don't know Brandon Routh. Nothing. Got nothing. Okay, this is Ray Palmer is his name. All right, now here is a deep Marvel one, and this is the question number four that I feel is really the key to knowing if you were going to win this thing or not, which is at this time, we haven't even talked about it yet. I don't think we're going to get deep into it because the last few years with Infinity War and Endgame, it's been all about the Infinity Gauntlet. But they want to know who created the Infinity Gauntlet. Do you remember the name of Peter Dinklage's character? Are you talking about the dwarf? Yes. I don't know. The name is Etri. At least in that movie, they have block letters. And this is a one, two, three, four, five, six. So this is a six-letter name. But Etri in Avengers Infinity War, you know, obviously is a five-letter name. So I don't know if they changed the name. So I'm going to have to look that one up because who could it be? I'm Googling it right now. Who created the Infinity Gauntlet? And the first thing that comes up, Jim Starlin and George Perez, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, well, that's not what we're looking for. So, oh, now this is crazy. So here it is. And this is like the most obvious answer, but I did not think it would be the case. And I, I believe it took place in issue Thanos. one. I've read it. It's going to be yeah, Thanos. Thanos. In the oh. original comics, the Infinity Gauntlet was actually a do-it-yourself job, cooked it up on the fly by Thanos himself. So the movies have ruined us. See, that's why you got to go to the source material. Dude, the source material has so much better stuff. Like Thanos was in love with Death, who is a female character in the Marvel Universe. And he's basically killing all these people to woo Death. Yeah, she just spurns him. Okay, uh, number five, the alter ego of Ralph Dibney. Is that a Marvel character? That is a DC character, and he shares a similarity with a Marvel character who's a member of the Fantastic Four. Reed Richards. So he's sort of an analog to Reed Richards without the oh, genius oh. bent. Is it, is it Plastic Man? This is actually the elongated man, who is another stretchy superhero, but he's a detective, and that's what makes him different. 
Lord. He's the world's greatest detective except for Batman. <laughs> so yeah, whenever there's a mystery, his nose twitches. That's kind of how he works, elongated man. And then I uh, dream of Genie. Okay, last one here. This this is a no-brainer for any Marvelite. Brother to the Scarlet Witch. Well, that would be the son of Magneto. <laughs> Depending on which continuity you believe. Well, the continuity that I read when I was growing up, that would be Quicksilver. That is correct. All right. Well, it looks like we are not in the running, so we're not going to get that new mutants. So you got to brush up on that DC comics. Uh, you know, just push me on. Get into the back issues. <laughs> I have that issue anyway, so I don't feel terrible. Sweet. Don't have to worry about it. <laughs> it's, not it's not signed, though. I don't know. I didn't really get into the signature thing. My brother did. Well... That is going to do it for this episode. Again, we, we changed up the format a little bit this time around, and I hope you enjoyed having a guest on. We certainly did. We want to thank Jeff for unsheathing his claws and joining us for this episode. Oh, I hope I was able to give anything of value. Thank you for having me. I had a good time. Yeah, and like I say, we're definitely going to put a link to your whole series uh, about Wolverine. There's panels that are scanned in, full pages and everything. I mean, it's, it's a really well-put-together series over on RetroDays.org, so pay attention to our social media so you can find that. Well, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.